Well, that time has come to uh, take a look at Paul's epistle uh, to the Romans. Will you turn with me, please, to that uh, portion of the New Testament? If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have printed uh, the section of chapter 1 that we'll be uh, commenting on this morning. It's in your bulletins, and we'd encourage you to take that out and follow along with it and take uh, notes along the side. Uh, Please uh, try to remember next week to bring your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some that we can supply so you can can study along with us. Uh, It's such a such a treat to turn to this, uh, this book and begin to look at it again. This is the book that has transformed so, so many lives. Uh, the, uh, the great uh, philosopher Augustine, whose shadow has been cast over all of Western civilization, was led to Christ through reading a portion of this, uh, of this book. He was uh, a follower of a sort of a mad philosopher by the name of Maniki. Uh, Augustine was himself a philosopher in the city of Milan in Italy. Uh, And living in a a kind of drug and alcohol and sex-induced haze, and he was sitting one day on a park bench talking to a friend about the meaning of life. And uh, he sensed that his own life was degrading. And he heard some children playing in a playground nearby, and they were chanting some Latin phrase, tola lege, it sounded like, uh, it sounded to Augustine, that's what they were saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he picked up a scroll of the book of Romans that was, that was nearby, and he read a section from uh, chapter 13, and it transformed his life. He became the Augustine who left his mark on Christendom. Uh, has left his mark on Christendom from the 4th century on. Uh, the same is, is, uh, is true of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a, uh, a professor of exegesis at Wittenberg University, brilliant young man on the way up, but terribly confused about the meaning of life. And he began to study the book of Romans. And uh, he hadn't read uh, into the book very far, he came to, to verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. And that one statement transformed his life. Uh, John Milton, whom you uh, know of from his uh, Pilgrim's Progress, was a, a juvenile delinquent growing up in Bedfordshire, England. And uh, he read the book of Romans, and it changed his life. He began to preach in Bedfordshire, and as you know, he spent 12 years in prison. As a result of that preaching, that's where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the theme of which is the theme of the book of Romans, by and large. And uh, over and over again, it, it's true. Whenever we look at this book and begin to, to, to take it seriously, lives are changed. I used to teach the book of Romans every year on the uh, university campus where I worked. And uh, it was always a a delight to me to see uh, the light come on in in students' eyes, not not because of my teaching, but because of the impact of this book as they begin to grasp these great life-changing principles. And I trust the same will happen to you as as we study it together. Uh, If you're not in a growth group, we would encourage you to to join one. We'll be studying this book in the growth groups. You'll have a chance to look at it on your own and discuss it thoroughly. Also gives you a chance to get to know people better. It's easy to get lost in our congregation, and we want you to know there's a place where you can be cared for. And uh, as we gather, we, we want you to 
come to love and, and to know this book. If there were no other book in, in the Bible, in the book of Romans, we'd have all the truth that we need to know to, to live uh, in a relationship with God. Now, uh, we don't know much about uh, the church in the city of, of Rome. We don't know how it was founded. It's somewhat unique because it was not founded by an apostle, as far as we know. We know who the apostle Paul was, but we know very little about this church because uh, the book of Acts doesn't tell us anything about the founding of, the, of, this, of this church. Uh, Peter didn't found it. He, he was martyred there, but he apparently wasn't even there when Paul wrote this book to the church. And Paul himself gives indication that he had not visited the city of of Rome prior to uh, the writing of, of this book. So we know that he didn't found it, Peter didn't found the church. It doesn't seem that any apostle did. Uh, it, it, it seems like uh, some ordinary garden variety Christians like you and me uh, set this church in, in motion. The best guess is that uh, some Jews went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and heard Peter's great message on that on that day, on that momentous day. And they became believers. They entrusted their hearts to Christ. And then they went back to Rome and, and they started this church. And uh, it's my belief that there were as many as five churches in the city of Rome. If, if I read chapter 16 correctly, uh, there were a number of house churches that were meeting throughout the city. It was a very large, influential church. As a matter of fact, Paul uh, says of this church in the, in the passage we're going to be reading shortly that their faith uh, had become known and recognized throughout the world. It had a tremendous impact upon the capital city of the Roman Empire and upon the empire itself. Uh, it, we know that just prior to the writing of this book, Romans was written about 56, 57 A.D., and shortly before, about AD 49, the emperor, who was Claudius at the time, issued an edict ejecting all the Jews out of, uh, out of Rome. And Suetonius, who's an early Roman writer, says that he did this because of riots at the instigation of one Crestus. And it's been long believed that he simply didn't know the correct spelling of the name Christ. Uh, the faith was new and... He wasn't aware of, of, a, of the proper spelling. And that this was a riot over Christ. The Jews and Christians engaged in vigorous debate over uh, the faith, which eventually began. It turned into riots. And uh, there was such a commotion in the city that Claudius ejected the Jews. He didn't understand the nature of the riot. But it gives us some idea of the impact that Christians were having upon the city at that time. Uh, another writer, Clement of Rome, who was the first bishop of Rome, writing uh, at the tail end of the first century, about 96 A.D., referring back to Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome. That took place in the mid-60s, shortly after Paul wrote this, uh, wrote this letter. He says, a great number of the elect went to their, to their deaths, so that we know that the, char the church was very large and very influential in the city. Now, uh, the greater question, perhaps, is why did Paul write this book? What was its purpose? Well, again, there are some good guesses. Some say that this is simply a theological treatise. Paul had been a Christian for a little over a quarter of a century. 
He'd done quite a bit of thinking. You wanted to leave his thinking to posterity. And that's, uh, that's a possibility. However, this book does not read to me like a theological textbook. I, I've read a lot of, well, not a lot, but some theological textbooks, and they put me to sleep. They give me the Z's. Uh, I, I recall a friend once commenting on a book that we were, requ- were required to uh, to read while I was in, in school, and he said, oh, no, he said, another German theologian come grunting out of the Black Forest. Uh, <laughs> There's something about the books of theology that uh, bore you to death. Uh, this book does not. It puts you right on the edge of your seat. And uh, I don't really see it as a systematic theological treatise, although it is perhaps the most systematic of all of, of Paul's writings. I, I think Paul had another reason for writing, and as a matter of fact, he tells us what it is. If you turn to chapter 15, it's very clear. At least it's clear to me why he wrote the book. Beginning with verse 17, or let's begin reading with verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Now, we read a phrase like that, and uh, uh, unless we understand what Paul is saying, we don't see the reach of the gospel at this point. From Jerusalem to Illyricum. Illyricum is modern-day Albania or Yugoslavia, just across the uh, the Adriatic Sea from from Italy. Uh, A sweep of about 12 to 1,300 miles from Jerusalem all the way to Yugoslavia, Paul says, I've preached the gospel. Churches had been planted in all of those areas. The apostles had gone everywhere proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. And uh, Paul says, my work in the East is done. It's been done. I've fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And he says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. He's like Captain Kirk in the uh, Starship Enterprise. He wants to go where no one has ever gone before and preach the gospel. And, And now look at verse 23. Now, there's no more place for me to work in these regions. These people are evangelized. There were churches in all the major areas uh, of the Roman Empire, from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And I've been longing for years to see you. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. You know what I think this book is? I think it's a support letter, basically. Paul is on his way to the West. He's on his way to Europe. He probably got as far as Britain, as far as we know, preaching the gospel. And what he wanted to do was lay before them the greatness and the magnificence of the gospel so they would get as excited as he about spreading the gospel onto Europe. And and he was looking to them for help, financial help and prayer and support and encouragement as he made his way on into, into Europe. Now, I I think that's the purpose for writing the book, Paul says so, to stir up the Romans uh, to missionary zeal. And I I hope that the book will have this effect upon us. Uh, If you're not yet a Christian, I I, I trust that this book will lead you to know Christ and to love it. And if you already know Christ, this book will lead you to, to share him, to give away your faith and begin to reach out into areas where people are not yet aware of, of the good news.
Now, uh, the structure of the book is very easy to follow. There are three uh, benedictions, uh, chapter, in the end of chapter 8, the end of chapter 11, and the end of chapter 16. Paul divides the book into three uh, neat uh, sections. And each of these sections are subdivided. Now, the division of the book is like this. And if you want to take notes, this will help you to think your way through the book. Uh, the first two and a half chapters, from chapter 1 through 320, is all about sin. And I guess we could sum up Paul's, uh, uh, the, the substance of Paul's argument by saying that uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, bar none. Uh, is sinful to the core. Uh, and, and the proof of the fact that we're sinful is that we all die. He points out that death is the result of sin. And if you want to know if all of us are tainted and touched by sin, then just observe the fact that we all die. And uh, Paul is, uh, is against sin because God is against sin. I uh, heard once of a young young boy who went to church, came back home, and Mother said, what, what did the preacher preach on? And he said, sin. And, and she said, what did he feel about it? And he said he was against it. Uh, <clears throat> well, that's what Paul would say. That's the first two and a half chapters, from chapter 1 through 320. And then in 321, there is an abrupt right-angle turn. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest from heaven, apart from the law. He points out that all of us are sinful. The situation is critical. It is cosmic. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. But now, Paul says in 321, the righteousness of God has been manifest from heaven. And uh, he declares the truth about our Lord's mighty saving acts. And that begins in 321 and takes us through chapter 5. And then uh, chapter 6 through 9 uh, those three chapters are all about how you grow, how you deal with sin in your life, how you deal with entrenched sin, with long-term habits that have gripped your life. Now, that we could call sanctification. So if you like alliteration, you have two and a half chapters dealing with sin, two and a half chapters dealing with salvation, three chapters dealing with sanctification. And then uh, chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11 are all about Israel, Israel's place in God's plan to bring salvation to the world. And the emphasis there is upon God's sovereign election of his people. So if you want another S, again, if you're fond of alliteration, there's another one. Sovereignty, three chapters on, on the sovereignty of God. And then beginning with chapter 12, on through chapter 15, about halfway through 15, he talks about how we serve, what, what it means to respond to the grace of God in service. The chapter, begin, uh, chapter 12, as you know, begins. Therefore... Because of the mercy of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. So uh, there's another S for you, service or sacrifice, beginning in chapter 12 through chapter 15. And then from 15 on to the end of the book, there are only 16 chapters in the book. He greets a number of friends in, in Rome, uh, and uh, we could call that salutation. So you have uh, two and a half chapters dealing with sin, two and a half chapters salvation, Three chapters, sanctification, three chapters, sovereignty, uh, three and a half chapters, service, and one and a half chapters, sanctification. Makes a nice little chant. If you want to work on this in your, uh, in your growth group, it's two and a half, two and a half, three, three, three and a half, one and a half. 
So uh, you can practice that in, in the growth groups, and we'll, we'll uh, start a wave or something here on Sunday morning. <laughs> now let's, uh, let's look at the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, th- th- this, this first section, from 1 through 7, is, uh, is an introduction to the book. It's obvious that, that Paul frequently does that. And in the introduction, he gives us the theme of the book. He hangs the door the key to the door out on the front porch. And uh, essentially what he says is, that, uh, this is Paul on this end, writing to you all, all you saints in, in Rome. And in between is a whole lot of truth, sort of a Dagwood sandwich. Paul to all would sum, would sum up the introduction. And in between, he spells out the theme of the book. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So he says three things about, about himself. He's a servant, a servant of God. Paul had recognized that uh, you got to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan puts it. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble, you might like to dance, you might be a heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage, you might have drugs at your command, women in a cage, you may be a businessman or some high degree thief, they may call you doctor, or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. What he's doing is dispelling the myth of neutrality, that somehow we can play both ends against the middle, we can stay in the center and and be untouched, but it is not true. We're either going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and be his slave, or we're going to be the slave of the evil one and, and enslaved to our passions and our desires and our drives. You've got to serve somebody. Paul says, I've chosen to serve Christ Jesus. That's something that can be true of all of us. The next thing he says is not true of all of us. He's called to be an apostle. That's a unique call. There are no apostles today. The apostles, by New Testament definition, had seen the resurrection of the Lord and had been commissioned by the risen Lord to plant churches and to write scripture. It's very clear that was their role. There are no apostles today. All the apostles died at the end of the first century. We have their writings. They're not needed today because they wrote the books that we call the New Testament. The prophets wrote the Old Testament. The apostles wrote the New Testament. So uh, Paul could refer to himself in this unique way. He's an apostle, one who was especially sent out by our Lord and set apart for the gospel. That's the third thing he says about himself. He's a servant and an apostle, and he's been given this commission to preach the gospel. Now, gospel, the word gospel is one of those overworked terms. Uh, We've evacuated its meaning by using it so much. Uh, It comes from an old uh, Anglo-Saxon term, uh, term Godspell. God in Anglo-Saxon is good, and spell is uh, word, spiel. We'd say good spiel. This is the good word. 
That's what uh, the gospel is. It's the good word about God. God is doing something about the mess that we've made out of our lives and out of our world. He cares. He's doing something right. You know, that's the question we often raise to ourselves and others. Is anybody in this world doing anything right anymore? Uh, USA Today has picked up on that that idea. I I don't know if you're aware of their editorial philosophy or not, but uh, they try not to print much bad news. That's one of the reasons they're gaining in popularity. Uh, Their their headline would say something like this, uh, Airline Crash, 85 Survive. We would normally uh, expect to see air, airline crash 35 perish, but they emphasize the f- fact that some survive because there's such a, an intense hunger for someone to tell you that something is going right. When marriages are falling apart, when, when crime is increasing in our streets, when the threat of nuclear war hangs over us, when the world is falling apart around us, is anybody doing anything right? Yes, the good news is that, that God has has done done something right. That's the good news. I heard a story once about a man who uh, he was an inspiring, uh, aspiring uh, bass soloist, and he he, he walked in for his uh, lesson one day, and his music. He said to his music teacher in a, just uh, kind of a flippant way, "What's the good news today?" And the music teacher picked up a little hammer and struck the tuning fork and he said that's middle c that's the good news he said the soprano upstairs sharps on her high notes and you flat on your low no notes but ping that's middle c and that's the good news today something is right in this world and uh, that that's what the good news is you know in, in all of the the wrongness all of the awfulness of this world somebody's doing something right that's the good news and uh, that's what Paul is going to tell us about. That's obviously the theme of the book of Romans, and it's certainly the theme of this uh, introductory section, uh, I think five or six times, depending on what translation you have. He uses the word gospel. We're going to use the word good news whenever we come across that term, because that's what it is. That, that's the good news. Somebody is doing something right for us. He's setting our world right. Now, he says some interesting things about the gospel. Oh, my goodness, I've done it again. Uh, there are basically three things about the gospel that he underscores. It's, uh, it's not an afterthought. It's something he promised beforehand. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Holy Scriptures, that's, that's Paul's word for the Old Testament. When Adam and Eve uh, pitched the world into ruin through their sin, when everything was going wrong, our Lord faced into that great debacle with the promise. He said the seed's coming, the man's coming, who's going to set things right. And throughout the Old Testament, as as C.S. Lewis says, the leaves of the Old Testament rustle with hope. A man is coming, a savior is coming, he'll be a Semite, he'll be an Israelite, he'll be of the tribe of Judah. He'll be of David's, one of David's descendants. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll live in Nazareth. He'll sojourn in Egypt. He'll suffer and die. And he'll rise again. Yeah, the Old Testament, I'm, I'm talking about the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament says. 
And when Paul talks about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I proclaim the gospel to you according to the scriptures. And that's Paul's word for the Old Testament. How he was crucified and buried and rose again according to the scriptures. It's all in the Old Testament. Everyone was looking forward to the one who is to come. So the gospel is something that's uh, promised and it's uh, centered on the Son regarding his Son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. So he had the human right to sit on the throne of Judah. He was a descendant of David. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Son of God is a messianic title. We don't deny that Jesus was God himself, but, but that's not the term. It's applied to him that stresses his deity. It's a messianic term. And the point that Paul is making here is that as the son of David, he had the right to sit on the throne of Israel. And as the son of God, he has the right to sit on the throne of the universe. He's been exalted to sit at the Father's right hand. He's the one who came to set things right and then... By the resurrection, God affirmed that he had indeed set things right, and then he was, he was exalted uh, to the place of, of authority. And then the third thing Paul says about the Son, you notice how he tracks through with a series of threes. Three things said about himself, three things said about the gospel. It was promised beforehand. It's centered in the Son. That's why we say the gospel is Christocentric. It, is, it centers on on Christ, and if we're not centering on him and his unique character and his unique qualifications for office, then it's not gospel, it's not good news. And then the third thing he says about the gospel is that it, it was through Christ and for his namesake that we receive grace and apostleship to call people in general from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith, and you also are among those who are called to, uh, to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul is saying? He said, we receive grace. Paul was, was out to murder Christians. You know his history. He hated Christians. He hated the church. He was trying to exterminate Christians. He's on the way up to Damascus with oaths on his, his lips, expressing his hatred for, for God's Son. And, and the Lord stopped him en route and, and expressed his love for him. And, and drew him into a relationship. That's what I, I referred to last week as crazy grace, this illogical grace that, that God gives us. As John Newman put it, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newman was a, was a slave trader. <laughs> he traded in human souls. He, 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 he took children away from their parents and, and, and he... He put them in a, in a dirty, dark hole where many of a ship, where many of them died crossing, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And later, when he was confronted with the gospel, he, he just could hardly believe that God could love a wretch like him. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like him. That's Paul on his way to kill Christians. And the Lord loved him on the way. And he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. He wanted to serve him, no matter what it, what it cost him. And then he went on his way as an apostle, preaching the gospel 
to, to Gentiles, that was a special call. He was called to, to share his faith with the Gentile uh, nations of the world. And specifically, to those folks in Rome. He, he describes them as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This was... This was 56, 57 A.D. This is Nero's Rome, corrupt to the core. Nero had just taken a boy as his wife, and, and this attitude towards sexual uh, mores had it spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. Not only were there senators and soldiers and educators and philosophers and social scientists and others in, 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 in Rome, but there were prostitutes and pimps and perverts. And one by one, they were, they were coming to know the grace of God and responding to it. It's interesting, you read through that list of names in chapter 16. And most of the names are Latin, they're Romans. And a lot of them were high officials, people that were high up in the government. And then you stumble across a name like Tertius, who delivered the letter. Evidently was a citizen of Rome, and, and he, he helped Paul write the letter and then delivered it. Tertius was a slave. He didn't even have a name. Tertius in Latin is an ordinal. Third, it means. He had a number. He didn't have a name. He wasn't anybody. And that's what Paul is saying. God takes the people who are somebody and the nobodies and the down and out and the up and out. And he loves them. And he gives them his grace. And he draws them to himself. And he says, you're a saint. How about that? You ever think of yourself that way? St. John, St. Bill, St. Philip, St. David. Not because there's anything in us worthy of sainthood, but simply because he loves us and wants to call us to himself. Uh, this uh, word is translated saints here is a word in the Old Testament that's uh, uh, used for the Israel of God, the, the people of God. They're the covenant people. God said to Israel, I'll be your God, you be my people. And then he called them the Hasidim, the, the saintly ones, the holy ones. And that word came over into the New Testament. The saints is used of God's people after Christ's uh, death, burial, and resurrection. That, someone has said there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are the saints and the ain'ts. And... Uh, and we're saints, not because you look very saintly or I look very saintly or because we act very saintly, but because we are called saints on the basis of, of Christ's death and our belief in the gospel. Now, uh, let's look at these verses from 8 through uh, 17. And believe it or not, I will get through in 10 minutes. <clears throat> my, uh, my version of the New Testament uh, has a... Uh, entitles this paragraph, Paul's Longing to Visit Rome, and that's as good a title as I can uh, place on this paragraph. Paul begins with a word of thanksgiving. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, that isn't necessarily positive because it got him into a lot of trouble. It was shortly after this that Nero began uh, his period of intense persecution of the church, and many, many Christians died as a result of their faith. But it does give us some indication of the impact that this church was having on its time. And incidentally, Paul does not say, the world is talking about how magnificent your churches are, your church buildings, 
They're, they're, you know, they weren't talking about the programs of the church in Rome. They weren't talking about their robed choirs. Uh, they weren't talking about their paid clergy. They didn't have any of those. They didn't even have church buildings. They didn't have church buildings till the 4th century A.D. It was the people of God. I remember once uh, uh, standing at the back of a group of students on the campus where I was working, and they were listening to one of the Christians uh, giving witness. And one student said to the other, what's going on? And uh, the fellow who was standing next to him said, oh, it's the Christians again. And I, I got real excited because they weren't saying, well, it's Campus Crusade for Christ or it's inner varsity or it's, it's young life. It's just Christians, that's all. Here are a group of people who place their dependence in another. They're not counting on themselves anymore. They put their faith in another. And that faith is being spoken of all over the world. Would that that were true of us, that wherever we went, we went, people would say, well, the Christians are at it again, that we were having that kind of impact on our, uh, our times and our town. Now, uh, Paul says, God whom I serve with my whole heart, this is verse 9, in preaching the gospel, there's our word again, the good news about his son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And specifically, I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now, we don't need to be in question about what this spiritual gift is. He's not coming to impart a spiritual gift in the sense that uh, the New Testament talks about the gifts of the Spirit. The, the gift that he wants to give is spelled out for us here. He wants to encourage them in their faith. Uh, in fact, he wants to be encouraged as well by their faith. So there's mutual encouragement. Now, Paul is eager to come and minister to the, the believers there in that, that body and encourage them. Uh, he says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. That's the second reason Paul wants to go to Rome. He not only wants to encourage Christians, he wants to have a harvest in the non-Christian world. He wants to go out on the streets, stand on the corners, preach to people, go into their uh, uh, houses, and open the scriptures to them, go into their fraternity houses, uh, uh, wherever. Take people out uh, to have a cup of coffee and share the gospel. They want to have a harvest among the, among the non-Christian uh, Roman world because, he says in verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, that is, both to the wise and the foolish, to the intellectuals and non-intellectuals. This is what grammarians would call a merism, the expression of opposites to indicate totality. We use that, uh, that idiom a lot when we talk about, uh, oh, a party we go to and then we say the, the rich and the poor were there. We don't mean there were just rich people and poor people. We mean all up and down the socioeconomic scale, representatives from, from all groups. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I, you know, I don't care what a person is or how much education they've had or how successful they are in their business. Wherever I find people that have a need, I want to share the gospel with them, and I'm obligated to do so. I owe it to them. Yeah, do you realize that's so, that we, that we have that same obligation? We owe love to people. That's an obligation that we will never fully pay off. 
We, we owe them love. The, the cashier at the grocery store, the person that pumps gas, uh, the person who works on your car, the, the, the fellow that comes around to trim your hedges, the, un, the university professor uh, in whose class you sit day after day, the doctor who, who takes care of your physical needs. Uh, we, we owe the gospel to them. I, I uh, know a woman who was sitting in a Bible study one time where they were discussing the, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the teacher made the point of the Good Samaritan that the next person, you know, the, the, the question was raised, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. The point of which is the next person you meet that has a need is your neighbor. Not necessarily the fellow across the fence, but whoever has a need, that's your neighbor. And this lady thought, all right. She said, the next person I meet, I'll, I'll, I'll be a neighbor to them and and she happened to be driving down the street, and it was raining like crazy. And here was a young couple standing on the side of the road, one of them black, one of them white. Got them in the car, had a little baby with them. They were just drenched, obviously, down and out. She began to chat with them, asked them if they had any interest in spiritual things. And uh, uh, the, the woman said, well, I, uh, Junior doesn't uh, read English. He has a Spanish Bible, and... and uh, I can't read Spanish, and just happened to be a New Testament in her car. She turned around, handed it to this couple, and took them home, and uh, gave them her phone number, and found out later they'd, they'd gotten tossed out of their apartment because they hadn't paid their rent. So she went over and got them, and brought them home, put them in her house, began to minister to them, and and eventually the the, the young lady came to know Christ, and she's now serving Christ down in San Jose, California, as a missionary to Jews. She was she herself is is a, is Jewish. A missionary to Jews on the streets of, of of San Jose. Her husband, who actually wasn't even a husband, just a live-in boyfriend, he left her, and left her with the child that he had fathered. But but she found Christ, and you know that's just you know you just don't do that sort of thing. You don't pick up hitchhikers, and and these are not my kind of people. We might say, but they are. Paul says they are. They are. We're obligated. To the wise, the unwise, to Greeks, non-Greeks. And Paul says, that's why I'm so eager, so eager to preach it. And furthermore, and this is what is going to lead him into the, the book itself. I'm not ashamed. Or we could put it the other way. I, for me, it's more powerful to state it positively. I am very proud of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That was the historical order of things. It went out first to, the, to Israel and then to the Gentile world. And Paul himself observed that order. Uh, he would normally go to a synagogue and preach until they threw him out, and then he'd go out on the streets and preach. I'm not ashamed of the good news because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He says, I'm proud of it because it's the only thing that can change people. It's the only thing that can change people. Education doesn't change people. It just makes them more intelligent in their, in their evil. Bettering social conditions doesn't, doesn't change people. Doing something for them physically is good, but it doesn't change people's hearts. The only thing that can change the heart of a man or woman is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And Paul says, that's why I preach it. That's why I'm not embarrassed about it. So I'm proud of it. 
It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. They have to, they have to, they have to believe it. And then in a word of explanation, verse 17, and this is going to lead him into the, the, the paragraph that follows. For in it, or in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. It's brought into our experience. It's brought from heaven down to where we are. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Literally, he says from, fir- from faith to faith. But what he means is it goes from faith to faith to faith to faith to faith. That's the way you get into the thing, and that's the way you carry it out. You just, you just keep believing. And he says it only has power to those uh, those who believe. Those who don't believe it may consider it foolish and weak. But for those who believe, it has power to change their lives. Because in it, a righteousness from God is revealed. It's brought into our experience. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You'll notice in your footnote, that's a quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Habakkuk. So again, the gospel is not an afterthought. It's been embedded in the word, embedded in God's mind from the very beginning. The righteousness of God is brought into our experience, he says. Now, let me give you a brief explanation of what he means by righteousness, because this controls his... We have to understand how he uses this word as we look at it through the, through the rest of the book. Paul is a Jew. He was a rabbi. He's thinking of the Old Testament concept of righteousness. And in the Semitic world, this is what that word meant. Uh, people would draw up contracts with each other. They'd make a deal. They'd say, all right, uh, you give me water rights, and at the end of six months, I'll give you ten camels. And they draw up the contract. And if at the end of the six months the man brought his ten camels over and gave them to the man that made the contract, they would say that man is tzedakah. He's righteous. He did what was right. And, and, and that's what Paul means. That God is going to do what's right. And that righteousness is brought into our experience. And he's going to tell us how that works as, as the book begins to, to unfold. You go back into the Old Testament, you get a clear example of what, what Paul is talking about. Abraham you know, was a camel driver, you know, just a truck driver. If he lived today, and lived over in Ur of the Chaldees, he was worshiping the moon. And, and God called him out of Ur, brought him down to Palestine. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to enrich you. I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. I'm going to give you a land. He just promised and promised and promised and promised Abraham. And he took Abraham out uh, and, and he made a contract with him. He cut a deal. Uh, that's actually the, the idiom that, that's used in Hebrew. He cut a contract with Abraham. And the reason he cut the contract is because that's what they literally did. In those days, they didn't go to the grocery store, the stationery store, and get a standard contract. They, they took animals, five different animals, ranging from cows, you know, down to sheep. And they got those big swords out, and they chopped those animals right in half. Sounds gory, but that's exactly what they did. They chopped them in half, and they would put one half of the animal over here, and one half of the animal over here. And then they would walk together through those uh, animals as a way of signifying they're going to keep the contract. The symbolism of that whole deal is if I break the contract, may this happen to me. May I be cut in half just like these animals. I mean, you, know, you get the point. Well, God promised and promised and promised and promised Abraham. He said, all right, Abraham, we're going to write this thing up. So he went out and they, you know, he got the, they got the animals. Abraham cut the animals in two and divided them up. 
And then Abraham was waiting for God to, to come and, and walk through the, the middle of these animals with him. He was just waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, he went to sleep. Went sound asleep. Every once in a while, he had to get up and shoot birds off because the vultures would come down and try to mess up the things and annul the contract. And he'd go back to sleep. And while he was asleep, God came down in the form of a of fire, a torch, uh, kind of a sensor with smoke and fire. And all by himself, he walked between the animals while Abraham snoozed. And when it was all over, Abraham said, I believe. And God said, you are Tzedakah, you are righteous. You see what, what was going on? God promised and he would fulfill the covenant. He was righteous in that sense. He was going to come through. He doesn't make deals that he, that he doesn't uh, complete. That was his part of the deal, was to come through with salvation for Abraham, to bless him and enrich the world through him. You know what Abraham's part was? To believe it. That's all. God wouldn't even let him walk through the, through the animals. He's trying to make that point. You don't have anything to do with this contract. All you have to do is believe it. And when Abraham believed it, God said, you're, you're Tzedakah. You're righteous. And you say, ah, oh, you know, I, I wish God would take the pains to make that kind of contract with me today. I'd be much easier to believe if, if I had those animals to look at. May I read something that John White wrote? And with this, we're done. Stand at Golgotha as the horror of darkness falls. Look at the God-man who hangs in extremis from a gibbet. Dare you demand further evidence of God's goodwill in his negotiations with you? The brazier and the torch have passed between the animals. God has committed himself. He has spoken the irrevocable word for your comfort and your assurance. Perhaps you too are waiting as the sun goes down. Perhaps vultures would snatch away the evidence that any contract exists between you and God. Go to the scriptures. Read in the Gospels all that took place. Christ's body was of human flesh and it was lifted up on a cross. The darkness actually descended and the veil was torn in two. These things happened and were recorded that you might know God has committed himself to anyone. Anyone! Who trusts him. He has gone to great pains to assure you that the gamble of faith is no gamble. That your commitment, your sacrifice, your step of faith will represent an entry into a deeper relationship with himself. The cost to you is trivial. What he offers is a far greater value. But you must believe. That's our part. His part is to come through with salvation. Our part is to believe. Let's pray. Would you right now, in the quietness of your own heart, just uh, open your heart to our Lord Jesus. If you've never done that, you've never believed, you've never entrusted yourself to him, will you do that? It's all he wants. He doesn't want you to be baptized or to join a church or to get involved in committees, church activities of that sort. He just wants you to put your faith in him. and He loves you. He's given himself for you. He longs to, 
to have an intimate relationship with you. He's hurt because of the separation that sin makes. He, he just wants you in fellowship with him. And he's promised. His word is good. He's going to come through with salvation. He'll forgive you of your sins. And he'll take you to, uh, into a closer relationship with him. And he'll teach you how to deal with the, with the habitual sins that, that have controlled you and haunted you throughout your life. And then in the end, he'll take you to be with him eternally. That's his part. Our part's to believe. Will you do that? Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Come into my life. Renew me. Make me what you want me to be. I trust you, and I entrust myself to you for your purposes. Amen.